let me begin uh, by just saying a big thank you. Many of you did come to my neighborhood this past Wednesday and helped with uh, cleaning out around my lake. And I just want to say a big thank you from me and my, from my neighborhood for that. Uh, many of you know it wasn't as I planned. About halfway through the evening, uh, I, I got a phone call from Joe McVicker, uh, who was on his way to the hospital And many of you since then have heard that uh, he got news that uh, Sheila, his dear wife, went to be with the Lord. Uh, All of you know that uh, since, uh, uh, I think many of you know that since the beginning of the coronavirus, we have lost five people, uh, none of them due to the coronavirus, but just five people from our congregation members who God has promoted to heaven. And on Wednesday, one of my dear friends and one of your dear friends went to be there. And it's just a reminder that we are still uh, in the land of the dying. You and I live in a world that is broken, that's fallen apart. Sheila McVicker on Wednesday went to the land of the true living. And she is with the Lord. And uh, you and I still are having to navigate death You'd be praying for Joe and his family tomorrow as they have a, a private gravesite uh, service. And, uh, but it also reminded me then that we still have a mission. And I want to thank those of you who were in my neighborhood, even after I had to leave, you continued to work and you were a testimony to my neighbors. And in fact, God used the events of Sheila to op- give me an opportunity to even with one of those neighbors share the message of hope. And so thank you for that. Look forward to seeing what God is going to do in and through this particular situation. Well, if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn uh, with me to Genesis chapter 13. Oh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be coming up to uh, chapter 13. And as we begin today, I have a question for you. How are you doing right now in your Christian life? How's it going? I don't know about you, but in my Christian experience, I can often feel like I am a failure. Why? Because I am a failure often. So often I fail the Lord by living in my own sin and in my own flesh. This was a topic of discussion this past week in our leadership meeting. As our pastors talked and discussed, we so often go to this, uh, you could say this valley where we've just sensed in our own lives, man, why do I never meet up to the standard? I feel like I have so many areas to grow in and so many uh, places that uh, need to be shored up. When I think that, when I think of all that God has called me to be and all that God has called me to do, and then I look at the status quo of my own life, it can get quite discouraging. I have responsibilities as a husband. I have responsibilities as a father. Many of you here, you have responsibilities maybe as a mother and, or a wife or uh, just a family member. And you look at all the responsibilities and probably most pr- predominantly, it's the follower of Christ. And you look at God's called me to do all of this. And you look at how you're doing and sometimes it's like, man. What's going on in my life? You know, on our journey of faith, we can often fail miserably. When we do, 
We often mar our testimony with those around us. We cause turmoil not just to ourselves, but to others who surround us, pain to them as well. I've seen this with many of my close friends. Remember when I entered ministry a number of years ago, I had numbers of friends who were in the ministry and just even seeing how some of them who started out in pastoral ministry and because of certain life choices and certain decisions that they made, they're no longer serving as an elder and a pastor. Why? Because of just failure. I don't know if today you are looking at your own spiritual life and you're seeing uh, like an F on your, your paper. I'm not doing too good. I'm messing up in a lot of areas. Well, it's text like the one that we're going to look at today that can be an encouragement and a help to us along the way. Today, we are going to see the patriarch Abraham. You could say the father of the faith. The guy who kind of is highlighted in the hall of faith. We are going to see this guy fail in a big way. However, what we're going to see as well is we're going to see that when he does fail, God comes through for him. You know what? Sometimes it's nice to see other people mess up so it encourages you. I remember as a... And numbers of times, you know, you ride the ski lift up. And as you're riding the ski lift up, you're just watching the other people ski. And maybe someone's tackling a a black diamond. And you kind of, there's some sense of joy when you see another person just fall. Now, of course, you're like, I hope nobody get hurt. And you're glad when they get back up. But sometimes you're just somewhat encouraged. Like, okay, other people fall. Other people mess up. And in this particular text, I don't want you to get happy that Abraham fell, but I want you to take joy in the fact that there is someone that when we do fall, help us to get back up. It's great to see how God comes through for his children. And today we're going to learn a very important lesson on our text, and it's this. Despite our repeated failures, God remains faithful. Isn't that a great truth? And it one we ought to remember on a, a daily basis. My desire today is to encourage my church family here by the greatness and the faithfulness of God to continue in your faith even in the midst of trying times, even in the midst of your own failures. Our text today is the second half of 1 Corinthians 12. But the failure seen here in this particular book is also a failure that you're going to see played out in the second half or in, and later in Genesis. So what you find in Genesis chapter 12, at the end of the chapter, you're going to see the exact scenario played out again in Genesis chapter 20. So what you'll see is basically this. You'll see this guy, Abraham, not only does he fail royally in this chapter, But eight chapters later, you'd think he would have learned his lesson, but he fails again. Now, we may point our finger at him, but if you really begin to take a look at your own life and point back at yourself, you know that's true for you. How often have you been in the same area of failure? Sometimes years later and say, how did I do this again? 
I think, uh, I think of the apostle Peter. Peter had a kind of a, a besetting sin and his besetting sin was fear of others. And you remember when he denies Christ at his crucifixion? He denied him three times. And then you read about his incredible uh, recovery, how God restores him, Jesus, after the resurrection. You say, okay, Peter probably is not going to fail with this fear of man anymore. But then you read the book of Galatians. And you read how here he's been apostle for a number of years. And he goes up and visits Antioch and he gets fearful of all of these other people who are there, the Judaizers, and he falls flat on his face again in that particular area. Well, I'll tell you, I'm looking at a bunch of people in this room who are just like Abraham and we fail. But the good thing is we have a God who in spite of all this is continuing to demonstrate and give his faithfulness. The background of our text today is Abraham's arrival in the land. He arrives in the land and you see his initial obedience. God had called him out of Ur. He travels, he lands there, you could say, in Cana. And he begins to do what God's told him to do. Start to dwell in this particular land. Everything is going good for this guy. When we have a difficult circumstance arise, and that is found in verse 10 of chapter 12, it says this. It says, now there was a famine in the land. Boom, boom. There's a problem here. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. You know, famines happen often in the Old Testament. We who live in a food-rich society don't fully understand all that was going on here. But here what we do is we do see the dominoes begin to fall in Abraham's failure. But the backdrop of all of this, as we'll see near the end of the message, is the faithfulness of God. But I want to point out to you four areas of failure that Abraham demonstrated through our text. And the first is this. Despite our independence... You could say independence from God, God remains faithful. Let me suggest kind of a subtle initial sign of Abraham's failure. It's interesting that repeatedly in Genesis up to this point, what has happened normally is that God is always the initiator. Like Genesis 1, God spoke and God created the world into existence. You're always seeing God initiate things. In fact, This chapter, Genesis chapter 12, God initiates and he goes to Abraham and says, I want you to arise and I want you to go to Cana. However, our story's text opens with a famine and Abraham's immediate response. It's interesting that it doesn't say that God told Abraham to go down to Egypt. It doesn't say there was a famine in the land and God said to Abraham, Abraham, rise up and go. It's interesting, later on in Genesis, Jacob is told, encouraged by God to go down into Egypt during another famine. Here there's no encouragement. This may be a slight hint at the beginning of Abraham's failure. Could it be that Abram simply did what he thought was best looking at the circumstances. 
He looked at the situation around him and thought, hey, I better get out of Canaan. Grocery stores are empty around here. Things aren't looking too good. Things are, in fact, looking pretty bad. Yeah, this land is the land that God's given me, but it's, it's time for me to just get out of Dodge right now. Did he consult the Lord? I just want to suggest, it doesn't say he did. What do we know from other texts of Scripture? Of course, this one wasn't written yet, but in Proverbs chapter 3, God tells us this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. You know, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to be people that when we make our decisions, we ought to acknowledge and to know God and seek his will. Do you know there's really no decisions that are too small to take to the Lord? I mean, particularly a move like this. I suggest to you that possibly he just goes to sojourn in Egypt and he just does it on his own. We don't know. Personally for me, I have found that the beginning of many of my failures in the faith have begun or have been preceded by a progressive independence from God. I'm not spending time in his word on a regular basis. I'm not in prayer. I'm not learning how to habitually bring things to him. And I'm not in a, a normal conversation with him, an ongoing conversation, you could say. Or I'm not fellowshipping with the church. I'm not practicing the one another's on a regular basis. And as a result of just my life being lived independently of God, I can become very much of a do-it-yourself type Christian. I'm just going to fly by the seat of my pants. This was not asking God and then doing. This was just doing and then maybe asking God's forgiveness later on. Have you personally begun to live a life independently of your God? You know what the Bible calls that? The Bible calls that pride. When you and I choose to just live... And and I'll tell you, your default mode and my default mode is this, pride. We are people that naturally like to live independently of God. And if you are doing that, I'm telling you, that is often an early sign that you're on your way to a failure. When was the last time that you had a meaningful prayer time with the Lord about a decision. If there has been a long time since that's happened, that's a problem. Trust in the Lord. Lean not unto your understanding. Let's just say that you're driving out west. Let's say you decided to take a trip out to the northwest to visit some of the big national parks in Oregon and Washington. And so you've never been out there and you jump in your car and you set your GPS GPS says one day in five hours to get there. And so you start listening to it, but you don't pay attention. And what happens? You never charge your phone and it, it just dies. And it's no longer take a left on Highway 40. 
and you just start to go by the seat of your pants again. Just, hey, I'll just make my, just make my, I'll just make these decisions. Hey, this looks like a good turn. This looks like a good turn. Are you going to end up in the Northwest if you don't pay attention to the clear signs that are laid before you? No way. You're going to end up in a place that you never meant to be. Why? Because you are not constantly checking to see where am I at, what are the directions here, and seeking wisdom from the map and wisdom from the person who's in charge. And in the same way, you know what? Don't live independently of God. Have you begun to do that? Maybe that's the area that you need to repent of this morning and ask the Lord, God, I've just strayed from you. I've just begun to live my life on my own. Abraham started operating off the situation before him. He said, oh, there's a famine. I'm just going to, this is what I'm going to do. Rather than the direction of his God. And this is where we often start going astray. Remember, in all your ways, as the text said, know him, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. That means everything. But the good thing is, regardless of all of this, whose eyes were on Abraham the whole time? God's were. I love the last verse of Psalm 1 where it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And it's it's a present tense. He is knowing the way of the righteous. It's like the mom on find friends or find my iPhone. When those kids finally get a phone and they start to drive. And it's like mom knows where they're at. I can just look at my phone. That's where they're at right now. They're watching it. Dad sometimes don't do as much of that. But I'll tell you, your heavenly father, he knows exactly where you're at, what time it is, what's going on, who's around. He's watching. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. It is here that we come to a second area of failure on Abraham's part. So that kind of independence, as I suggested to you, leads to, you could say, a clear area of failure, and that's this, fear. And I want you to learn here, despite our fear, God remains faithful. Here, as Abraham and Sarai, I have to work at saying Sarai. You know, when Mark was reading that, you're like, oh, Sarai. And sometimes uh, you'll find me, we're right now in the time of Abraham's life where his name really is Abram. And his wife's name is Sarai. And of course, we know that their names change to Abraham and Sarah later in the story. But here, Abram and Sarai prepare to enter the land. So Abraham has a talk with Sarah in in verses 11 and 12. Listen to what it says. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. First thing, good thing that Abraham does is he affirms his wife's beauty. Okay. Good thing men do that often. Very helpful for you. Now, she was around at this time 65 years of age. However, if you look at the timeline of these people's lives, what you find is that that was kind of midlife for them. So imagine you could say, like, 
midlife around 40. Maybe that's an equivalent. Abraham was afraid because of her beauty that they would kill him. And so his failure here is really his fear and anxiety. He begins to fear those around him and he starts to worry about what's going on. And I'll tell you, as the book of Proverbs says in another place, and it says in Proverbs 29, the fear of man brings a what? A snare. It lays a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And what does Abram do? Abraham begins to fear the men around him and it lays a snare for his falling. And I'll tell you, fear is something that you and I need to be very cautious about and be on alert for. Of course, Abram didn't have at that point Philippians chapter 4 where it says, be anxious for nothing. Don't be anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Of course, we would love for him to be able to have done that. Remember that God had told Abraham other promises. What were the promises that God had already told Abraham in the section right before we got to this? He was told that God was going to make his name great. Number two, he was going to make a great nation, which meant this, that from him a whole nation was going to come about and he was going to have to have a son. And if he was going to have to have a son... Who was going to make sure that he stayed alive? God was. But in this particular situation, he didn't believe the promises of God. He thought, okay, I better help God out a little bit. And he wasn't trusting the promises. He was trying to do his own solving of situations. Here, Abraham was gripped by fear and worry. He had a patriarchal panic attack. Now, Thinking on his predicament rather than on the promises of God. And I'll tell you this. We are people that are so susceptible to worrying. I was reading a book this past week and in the chapter it, it reminded me of just what worriers do. I wrote a few of them out. It says this. Worriers meditate on possibilities. They start meditating, oh, maybe this could happen, and then this could happen, and then this could happen, and this could happen, rather than the promises of God. Here's another one. Worriers scare themselves with their imaginations and their fantasies. They begin to create, and you know our minds are like that. We start, oh, what if this happens, and this happens, and this happens? Here's another one. Worriers are masters of meditation. You know what they do? They think all the time. But they're not thinking about the right things. They're thinking about the wrong things. And finally, worriers create imaginary emergencies in their mind. It's like the, as soon as you get that little pain in the neck, I've got a brain tumor. I've got this. I've got this, and you go to all those, and you you open up WebMD, and you look at those symptoms, and you now have the five worst diseases that you could possibly have. You create all those. You know what? That's what we do. Our minds play tricks on us, and you know that's exactly what Abraham was doing here. He got gripped by fear, and I'll tell you, fear is a vicious foe. 
Trying circumstances like famines and hard situations can often accentuate our fear. You can get busy in life, not be eating right, not exercising, not getting your time with the Lord, and situations come and they can overcome you with fear. I can tell you, I've been there. It was a while back. My life was moving like a freight train with all the things I had to do. And I can tell you, I looked at some true, there were real dangers, you could say, in my life. But I stared fear in the face. I would say, and some of you have been there, where you have been so gripped by fear, whether it was a panic attack, or you began to fear, oh, what if I get Alzheimer's or dementia or this or this? What if I go crazy? What if they had put me in a loony bin? And you go, you go all of these different places and you start to create all of these. And I'll tell you, it is, it's a scary place to be, isn't it? What are you meditating on? You're meditating on the possibilities and you're not meditating on the promises of God like, and we know that all things are going to work together for good to them that love God. And here, Abraham got gripped by fear. I remember years ago when I was in college, now this was almost 25 years ago, I was struggling with a certain fear and it was the fear that I wasn't saved, that I really had not come to Christ yet. And I was doubting my salvation. And I'd finally had enough courage to approach one of my mentors, uh, Sam Horn. Uh, Sam is now the new president of Masters uh, University and Seminary out in California. And I remember just going to him, he was my pastor at the time, and says, I keep struggling with this. Here I am studying for the ministry And I'm fearful that maybe God didn't save me. And I remember sitting in the parking lot of the library at the university that I attended with Sam. And Sam just shared a little, you could say somewhat of a comical illustration to help me. He said, imagine this, imagine two firstborn sons during the time of the Passover in Egypt. You know the story in Egypt when... God was giving the plagues on Egypt, and he had said during that last plague that he was going to send the death angel in, and all the firstborn sons, or all the firstborns would be killed if they didn't put the blood on the doorpost. So imagine these two firstborn sons in Egypt. They were, their fathers were told to kind of put the blood on the doorpost, or be, or be killed by the death angel. And so both dads did it. In fact, both of the boys went out there and watched their dads do it. But one son kept wondering if there was enough blood on the door. Dad, did you get like all around the doorpost? Why don't you put one more coat on it? Maybe a, three coats. You sure the death angel will see? I mean, we got dark stained wood. That blood, I mean, you you think he really saw that? As they went to bed that evening, the two sons, one of them, you know what? He saw his dad put the blood on the door. He went to sleep and he slept the entire night all the way through. The other one, like all through the night. (gasps) Was there enough blood? One of them was meditating on the promises of God. 
The other one was meditating on his circumstances. Who made it through the night? Both of them. Why? Because what was on the door? The blood was on the door. It's not the amount of blood or anything. It's, it's who made the promise and who secured it. It's God. And I'll tell you this, some of you who struggle with fear, particularly in your salvation, you know what? The Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And meditate on the promise of God rather than your circumstances or even your own mind. Did I believe enough? You know what? It's not the amount of faith. The Bible says is faith of a grain of mustard seed that could move a mountain. I haven't seen any of you move mountains lately. But it's that much. If you had that much, I mean, wow. So here was fear. What are you meditating on right now? Abraham looked at his situation rather than looked at his faithful God. You know, that fear led to a third area of failure, and that was deceit. And here we'll learn this. Despite our deceit, God remains faithful. And here Abraham instructs Sarah to do something. He says, say that you are my sister. This is in verse 13. It says this. It says, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So he calls his wife to be deceitful. We find in Genesis chapter 20, the second occasion, this is in a whole different situation, but it's the same scenario. In chapter 20, we find that Sarah is, in a way, his sister. Abram and she shared a father, but not a mother. This was common during this particular era. So what he was telling her to do was to give a half-truth. Or you could say a half-lie. But you know what a half-lie is? It's a lie. It was concealing the truth. It was a purposeful misleading. Abram may have tried to justify his action by saying, you know what, I'm really not lying. Because I am telling her, we're telling them that she is my sister, and she is. But he wasn't being truthful. Full of truth. He wasn't giving the full package here. I'll tell you, you know what independence from God does? Independence from God can lead to fear, and fear can often lead to deceit. And our sin will not work the righteousness of God. Abram may have used reasonings like this. He could have said, and you know, we we do stuff like this because our minds are so brave at times. God has promised that he is going to give me a seed. And if I don't deceive these people, I'm going to die and that seed's not going to happen. So I better manipulate the situation. But I'll tell you, dishonesty never pays off in the long run. It doesn't. I'm glad there's a God who can overcome all of this, as we'll see. I personally remember a time. There was a certain item that I wanted to get from a store with something that I had already received. I saw that there was a way that I could manipulate the store's return policy if they didn't ask pointed questions. I wasn't going to lie if they asked me, but I wasn't going to be full of truth. 
So what did I do? I went there, I made the exchange, and I got the item that I wanted. But on my way home, I felt totally guilty. It was like, I don't even want this thing anymore. I just, it wasn't right. So I went back to the store, and I explained to them what I did, and I was rebuked. It was like, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. But they couldn't fix it, and they said, well, you get to keep it. And even when they told me to keep it, it was like, man, I I hurt my testimony. Deceit never pays off. Let me tell you, where do we learn it from? We learn it from some of our patriarchs. We get it because we, we are depraved people. Has God not given you, let me remind you this, has God not given all of you everything you need? Has he not done that? And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ. Is God not more than enough for you? Let's say he took everything from you. Is he not more than enough? Is he not the all-satisfying one? And when you and I try to use deceit to get new things or what we think of finagle situations, you know what? It's where we move from discontentment to an unbelief in our God. He's more than enough. Is he not more than enough for the security and care of your life? Does deceitfulness ever need to be a part of the equation? No, of course not. Why do you and I try to manipulate situations? Are you right now in the midst of being deceitful with people? Maybe what you need to do before it gets too, you get yourself in too big of a hole, clear your conscience and get right with the Lord. Don't live in deceit. Fortunately, of course, what's behind all this? I've told you, I've already been alluding to this. Behind all this sin is the backdrop of the faithfulness of God. God faithfully guides through the situation. But I want to just point out one final thing, and it's this. Despite our selfishness, God remains faithful. You know what, in essence, Abraham in this whole situation was thinking about who? Him. Did you notice where it says, hey, I want you to do this for me. I want you to protect my life. And here he is, he's putting his wife at risk during all of this. So what happens? They get to Egypt, and Abraham was right with what happened. He did, have, he did worry about a possibility, and that possibility did happen. Notice what it says in verse 14. It says, When Abram entered into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Now, we're not told all the details, But Pharaoh seems to be adding Sarai into his harem. You know what? Oftentimes, as you read the book of Ruth, you find that this took time for all of this to happen. In fact, when Ruth was taken into uh, the Persian king's empire and, and brought into her harem, it was like a year of preparation for her to even come into the king's presence. But... What we find is this. We find a very ironic situation. Abraham seems to be doing a bunch of wrong things. 
and he keeps getting blessings. Notice what it says in verse 16. It says, and for her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. And just as a side note, he was given all these things. And one of the things that he was probably given at this time was a woman by the name of Hagar. And that's going to come up later on. Kind of a seed of a future failure in Abraham's part that arrives on the scene because she was an Egyptian servant. So here in the midst of all of this, he's given all of this stuff. He's doing wrong and he's blessing. And don't ever think just because you're getting blessed, that means you're doing everything right. You're getting blessed because God is gracious and kind and good. But here Abraham's doing the wrong thing and it's just very unusual. So Pharaoh is showering Abraham with gifts, possibly because he thinks that Abram is her brother and he's kind of doing his dowry type thing. But notice now the intervention of the Lord. Who's in charge of all of this? Who oversees it all? It's the Lord. And what you find is this. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. You know, God said that he would bless those who bless Abraham and those who would curse him or hurt him, he would curse. Even though Pharaoh was doing some of this, you could say in ignorance, God's word was the truth. And God was going to do what he said was going to happen. And in verse 17, the Lord afflicted Pharaoh. God has overseen this whole situation. Just like years later, great plagues came upon a future Pharaoh's house due to his treatment of Abram's family. We're not told how this Pharaoh finds out. Okay, the... It just cuts to the chase in the story. We find in chapter 20 that God comes to the ruler in chapter 20 at night. And he basically tells Abimelech, he tells him this, you're a dead man. How would you like to be woke up by the Lord saying you're a dead man? We don't know how Pharaoh was told, but maybe it was similar. Maybe Pharaoh has another dream. And it's like, you're, you're a goner if you don't do something here. Notice Pharaoh's response, verse 18 through 20. It says, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? I mean, here's the guy who's supposed to be dishonest and deceitful. And he's getting on to the patriarch who's got all these promises. Say, what are you doing lying to me? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now there, here is your wife. Take her, and it's interesting, the chapter opens... With God telling Abraham, remember chapter 12, go to the land of Canaan. The chapter ends with Pharaoh saying, go, get out of here. Pharaoh seems to have more fear of God than Abram does at this time. In all of this, what do you find? You see the faithfulness of God holding Abraham up. God had promised to work out his blessing in this man's life. And of course, you and I know how to fast forward the story. Okay. We've kind of been to the, we've seen this movie before. Okay. 
What was God going to do through Abraham? God was going to give Abraham a son, and from that son, another son, and another son, another son, and that son, another son, and ultimately, Jesus was going to come. The Christ, who ultimately, through him, all the world would be blessed. God had a plan in all this, and God has a plan in your life. He has a plan, and he's working it to his perfection. He who who begun a good work in you is going to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And you know what? He fails, and you think he learns his lesson? I'm sure on his way back to Cana, it's like, man, why did I do that? God's in charge of all this. He, and, and he's leaving with all of this stuff that he's given. I did wrong and God continued to heap his blessings on me. And you think he'd learn his lesson and then you get to chapter 20 and he does it again. And we continue to remer- learn that truth. Despite our failures, God remains faithful. So Lebanon Baptist Church, how do you and I respond to this? Well, remember the first recipients of this book I mean, you and I are like the millionth whatever who are reading Genesis. But the first people who read it were a group of people called the Israelites on their way to Cana after God had inflicted all these great plagues. And you know what they probably felt like? Did they fail in the wilderness? Did they mess up? Did they have fear when they got to the banks of the Jordan and they sent the spies over and the spies were to go and search out the land and the spies, 10 of them were were bad and said, no, we can't do this. These are great giants there. But two of them, Joshua and Caleb says, you know what? They're bread for us. We'll eat them for lunch. Let's go and do this. But what does the nation do? They fear. And now they're wandering as a result of all this. So did they live at times independently of God? Were they deceitful? Did they fear? Were they selfish? Yes. But what God was doing was he's writing this story to tell them, despite your unfaithfulness, you have a faithful God that you can trust. And even though you mess up at times, go to him. He is faithful and he's going to work out his promise and his blessing in your life. God has our back. And in this walk of faith, we must remember that truth. A great verse, if you're going to memorize a verse on this. Second Timothy is this, if we are faithless, he remains what? Faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He is a faithful God. Who's the hero in all this? Is it Abraham? Uh-uh. You know, the hero... The one who's always the hero in all this is our God. He is the one who always is the one who overcomes our failure. So now understand me in this. I am not today giving all of you a green light to continue to fail in your life. Hey, great. Even my failures, God is going to remain faithful. So you know what? Let's keep up the failures. That's kind of like the Romans 6 text where it says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, since God has forgiven us of all of our sin and his grace has been heaped upon us, let's just sin as much as we want because our sin magnifies the graciousness of God. And of course, what does Paul say? God forbid. 
None of us should presume on the mercy of God. Some of those Israelites who were in the wilderness, where are their bodies? Well, the dust of their bodies are strewn across the wilderness because some of them just chose to live in failure. But what we are to do is we are to see in this a God who knows our weaknesses and will carry us through. Consider it this way. Some of you, maybe with the first time you got a checking account and you deposited your first $500 into that checking account, sometimes what banks do is they say, hey, I give you this $500, but we know that sometimes things happen, and so we're going to give you kind of a protection. So if you start spending money and you forget that you don't have enough in there, we're going to give you overage just in case, maybe up to $300. So then when you get your next paycheck, we'll bring it back up. And you know what? It's nice to have that kind of assurance there. Now, banks are not doing it because they really love you, okay? It's not that you and I say, hey, I've always got this little overdraft protection that when I fail, so I'm going to just keep using it. It's not to be used on a continual basis. You know what you're supposed to do as God's children? You are supposed to continue to walk with God and live for him, but it is an assurance that you have a God that when you do make an overdraft, he will always work it because he loves you for your good. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And you know what? If I go to this text, he who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for you, shall he not freely give you all things? If you have a God who gave you his son, Jesus, for your good and your eternal salvation, will he not provide everything you need when the famine comes and things look bad and fear begins to knock on your door and you're tempted to deceit? If he gave you Jesus, will he not give you everything you need to go through that? So what do you need to do? Call unto him and he will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not. Let's pray.